This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. Today we're going to be talking about one of those evolutionary elements, and that is in the name of mobile integrated health and or community paramedicine. But first, a word from our sponsor. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. It's designed to meet the challenges you face every day to help keep you safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com slash globe. That's msafire.com slash globe. Back in May, I talked on a solo podcast about the Oakland Fire Department's odyssey into uh, the mobile integrated health realm. Uh, to help us cover mobile integrated health and community paramedicine a little bit deeper today, we're going to be talking with uh, Chris Sebolero. Uh, Chris has worked in both the field and corporate environments and is a nationally recognized EMS leader, a best-selling author, and EMS advocate. Chris is president and CEO of Sebolero and Associates, a medical consulting firm assisting organizations in meeting the challenges of tomorrow. He's also a member of the Forbes Coaching Council and member of Fire Rescue One sister site, uh, EMS One's editorial advisory board. And in his spare time, Chris hosts uh, EMSOne.com's podcast that's called Inside EMS. Chris, welcome to the Side Alpha Podcast. Chief, I got to tell you, I am so excited to be here and I just love this show. I've listened to every episode and I am excited to share a little bit about community paramedicine with your audience. Outstanding, Chris. I appreciate it. Uh, we we listened to your show as well. It's I wish I had more time to listen to all kinds of shows, but uh, we listen to the ones that make sense and the EMS one and Fire Rescue ones make sense. Before we uh, jump into uh, the discussion today, I can tell you that mobile integrated health and community paramedicine have become hot topics in many states and, and locales. Um, here in Highlands County, Florida, we're just now rolling out the concepts of mobile integrated health and uh, laying the groundwork uh, for implementation with some grants and different uh, opportunities uh, from the state level. So while in some places um, it's it's just rolling out, some places it's, it's really um, involved, uh, there is indeed a lot of excitement and buzz from the healthcare community specifically about uh, these programs. So, Chris, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk um, about what exactly community paramedicine is and how that differs from mobile integrated health and kind of while well, you talk about the differences, if you could de define the two terms for our listeners, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, and, and that's a really great question, Chief, because it seems that folks are using mobile integrated healthcare, community paramedicine, uh, you know, kind of in the same uh, breath. But there is a bit of a difference. So when we think about mobile integrated healthcare, one of the one of the uh, scenarios I give, think about it as an umbrella. And community paramedicine is really just one uh, panel of that umbrella. So as we now start to think about the transition from the episodic side of EMS and uh, fire-based EMS, 
we're really moving in towards the preventative side. Instead of being reactive, we want to go ahead and, uh, you know, be preventative, right? So that's what we're looking at. And we're using paramedics to kind of help in that realm of that preventative side. Now, we know our high utilizers. We know our frequent flyers. We know the people who are using EMS and, and the ER as their primary care. So we need to be able to develop the tools necessary to help them to navigate the healthcare system. Chief, you got to remember, you know, I've been in the game a long time, as I know you have. We wanted everybody to go to the hospital via the ambulance. The ERs wanted everybody to come to them so they can go ahead and take care of them. This this was how we were making our money. But now, as we see this change with the ACA, we need to now be able to say, how do we change this paradigm? So we're kind of fixing a system that we broke. So from the mobile integrated side, it's not just paramedics that we can use in the field, right? We now see nurse practitioners in the field, another panel of the umbrella. We now see nutritionists that are going into the field, another panel of the umbrella. We have community paramedics, another panel of the umbrella. One of the things that's happening in the mobile integrated movement is that the paramedics are really kind of uh, you know, staking their claim to this umbrella. And more and more EMS agencies, more and more fire-based EMS agencies are starting to use different allied health professionals to ensure that their members or patients, or uh, we like to call them uh, EMS uh, loyalty program members, right? Because we know who they are all the time, right? We give them a card every 10th one, they get a free EMS trip. Well, they're not paying for it anyway, but... um, but now what we're doing is um, we're getting the resources to them, Chief, because it's just a Band-Aid, right? Yeah. I go in and I, uh, you know, they got asthma. I open my bag of tricks. I give them an albuterol. I give them an atrovent, take them to the hospital. Doc gives them albuterol. Doc gives them atrovent, maybe gives them some solumedrol, and then sends them home until the next time when the pollen's in the air and they need to go back and do it again. We're fixing the problem. We're not fixing the system. So mm-hmm. in, in you know, make a long story short, mobile integrated healthcare is all the allied health professionals, community paramedicine is one panel, but we need to change the paradigm. Sure. You know, it's interesting you describe it that way because, you know, where I am in my organization here uh, is a much smaller department than, of course, where I came from in, in Prince George's County. But the um, the cell, if you will, here is that it is all about community risk reduction. So those that um, are familiar with the community risk reduction mantra, if you will, from fire prevention, I've flipped that table, if you will, and made community risk reduction the big umbrella with mobile integrated health being one of the panels and community paramedicine one of the panels. So it's interesting you described it that way. I'm describing it um, the same way just with a different umbrella. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all about community risk reduction, right? It's either fire fire risk reduction or medical risk reduction. And uh, that's a, what we as service agencies are all about. No, I have to agree with you 100%. When you think about this, you know, again, uh, we wanted all the calls, right? You know, and, right. and now what we're trying to do is to say, you know what, we can make a healthier community. And, and we're the ones that really can make this difference, Chief, because... Yeah. You know, and we're going to talk a little bit about payment, I hope, uh, in, the, in the future of this show. And I'm going to touch on a little bit of what we're doing in that space. 
But now when we start to think about this, regardless of what the insurance companies are doing or regardless of what the hospitals are doing, when these people need us, they're calling 911. And we were the missing component because we didn't know the hospital had this program. We didn't know the insurance companies had this program. And what we were doing, we were showing up at their house. We were putting them in the ambulance. We were taking them to the ER and we were starting this process all over again. Now when EMS could be the focus of this, we know that, you know what, you're in this program, you know, you've got this doctor, uh, and now in this ET3 time, um, we can get the doctor on the phone, we can get the doctor on telemedicine, we can stop taking these people to the hospital, and we can help them live a better quality of life. Yeah. And before we talk about ET3, this you mentioned, or you kind of touched on it, this really isn't new. I mean, a lot of people tend to say this uh, new community paramedicine thing that's out there, but it really isn't new. It's been around for years and years, right? You know, it's funny you say that, Chief, because this is one of my this is one of my marching orders when I talk to people and say, "What's up with that new community paramedicine?" And just to give you perspective, I was working with with MedStar down in Fort Worth, Texas, in 2008. I left there in 2010. That's when we were starting the first community paramedicine program. And if I'm not mistaken, in 2006 and seven. A component of that was happening in the wake system in the Carolinas. So when yeah. we think about community paramedicine, uh, it's been around for a long time. And even more, I'm gonna I'm gonna shock you a little bit more if we go back to the EMS agenda for the future that came out in 1997. They had a component of what community paramedicine should look like in those rural areas. So yeah. it, it's not new. The concept has been around for a long time. And if you think about this from the days where you and I were running calls in the field way back when, before electricity, we're now thinking about um, we were doing some of this thing back then. And yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you can go to the first modern programs in 2007 and 2008. So as you mentioned, sir, it's, it's not new at all. Yeah. And, and it was much harder when we had to corral the horses. You're right. You know, one other thing with um, the the naming. So I want to go back just a second to the naming of mobile integrated health or community paramedicine. And this is something I've found, and it, it also helps people, at least here, it's helped people understand a little bit of the difference between the two. Um, you know, and a, a lot of people don't quite understand the difference between community paramedicine or mobile integrated health. And to me, they are two dynamically different programs with the same mission in, in reducing uh, hospital recidivism, 911 recidivism. Uh, but the community paramedicine has um, the connotation of all advanced life support skill environment. Uh, and that's not, certainly not necessarily what mobile integrated health is about. Mobile integrated health bringing, like you said, all those panels of the umbrella together, all those different, whether it's social services or uh, the fire department or whatever it is, Mobile integrated health is much more about an integration of services to help improve things for Grandma Jones, where community paramedicine, uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, some of the field work, but community paramedicine can indeed be an advanced life support uh, field level hospital, if you will, right? I mean, it's uh, there are two dynamically different things that are operating in the same space. Is that a fair way to say it? I mean, I think that's a great way to say it. And when you think about this, I mean, you, you, we're doing our work in the home, right? So one of the things I'll give you an example, Chief, I mean, it, you know, we're talking about a CHF patient and somebody now, uh, you know, standard of care is now becoming CPAP, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, but we would put that person on a stretcher. We'd start an IV. We'd get in route to the hospital. We, we, back in the day, we used to give them 40, 60, 80 milligrams of Lasix. Um, and now we have CPAP. We can now utilize that. Um, but now we can treat that person in the home, right? We've got all the diagnostic equipment we need. We got the CPAP right there. You know, we, we got the IVs if we need to use them. We can hook the EKG up so the doctor can get the EKG in the hospital. Even more importantly, we got telehealth now that we can connect them with an app on our phone that we can get the ER physician on the phone. And now we're able to manage the patient a little bit differently. And we want to be able to ensure, and again, when we start to think about alternative destination, treatment in place, transport to the hospital, we can manage these patients differently. Instead of rushing them to the hospital where they're gonna do the same exact thing in the ER that we can do in the house, mm-hmm. we just need to be able to change the paradigm of the provider to say, what's your rush? Let's go ahead and see what we can do here. Now, someone that's really severe and has CHF, if we can move it with Lasix, if we can move it with uh, um, uh, CPAP, I think that that's great. But more importantly, Chief, if we can monitor the patient's weight on a daily basis, and again, we have an app that we use in my organization that sends a uh, automated content every morning to a patient that says, what's your body weight today? Well, if their body weight's increased two pounds or three pounds from yesterday, they're starting to retain water. So even though I'm not going to their house today, it'll bing me to say, Chris, you may need to call Janelle because her body weight just went up you know, three pounds of water weight, she may be uh, retaining fluid in her lungs, go check her out. And now I can offset the crisis and now help her to avoid calling 911 tomorrow or the next day. Sure. Yeah, no, it, it, it's great opportunity. And uh, that uh, telehealth piece that you mentioned is uh, certainly an evolving, uh, big evolving piece that I think has got uh, a lot of good uh, history to come. So, so good stuff. How about uh, ET3? Where does that fit into the community paramedicine program? Yeah, so one of the things that I, I want people to know about ET3 is that it's a 911 benefit right now. The, the, the leaders in the field that are moving community paramedicine, of course, we're trying to get CMS to start to pay for this. Now, I think that that's a good and a, and a bad thing because we really have to end our dependency on CMS and really go after a lot of the money that's out there. Matt Zavodsky is a big leader in community paramedicine, works in the MedStar system, and is probably one of the top leaders when it comes to this transition. And him and I were speaking at a conference in Arizona or New Mexico, and uh, I was talking to say, you know, we've got to end our dependency on CMS. There's millions and millions of dollars out there that we need to put our hands on. And he actually interrupted my lecture to say, Chris, you're actually wrong. There's not millions and millions of dollars to put our hands on. There's billions and billions of dollars to put our hands on, right? So now when we start to think about this, those leaders in EMS are talking to CMS to say, community paramedicine, community paramedicine, community paramedicine. Now, now here's a little bit of history for you, Chief. I'm working with Anthem Blue Cross on one of the largest pilots in the United States that's paying for community paramedicine home visits. And when CMS started to move to the ET3 model, which is now giving reimbursement for treatment in place for alternative destination or treatment to the uh, transport to the emergency room, ET3, treatment in place, uh, treatment in the ER, treatment in alternative destination, 
Um, they actually called Anthem to say, hey, what are you doing in this program? Because we want to kind of mirror that in our ET3 program, because Anthem was doing it two years before CMS even jumped into this game. But what this is doing for CMS is it's saying, let's, let's dip our toes in this water of now changing EMS from a transport benefit to more of a provider benefit. And, you know, unfortunately for this, I think it's going to take three to five years before CMS gets the information that they're going to need. But there are some systems that have community paramedics that are putting them into the ET3 model. So I'll give you an example. One of the three legs of the three-legged stool is treatment in place. Mm -hmm. So the paramedic will go in. He'll say, well, there's no reason that I think you need to go to the hospital. Let's get a doctor on telehealth. Let's let the doctor talk to you and make the decision if you can stay home. And maybe that happens. So now if I have an agency that has a community paramedic, I can send my community paramedic there in an hour just to say, you know, Mr. Jones, how you doing today? You know, I know that we were here earlier. How you, how you feeling now? Is there anything I could do for you now? Or if you need us to come back out, here's the community paramedicine number and give them a call. So I think that there is some really good overlap, um, but it'll be good to see what happens with this when this pilot is over. Right. Right. All right, let's switch gears just a second. As I think, um, you know, and I'm certainly trying to, to um, I'll, I'll use the words push this agenda, although I hate saying it that way, but um, fire departments in some places, fire-based EMS, okay, that, another buzzword, but fire-based EMS uh, gets it and they understand the whole mobile integrated health or community paramedicine piece, but there's certainly some misconceptions out there that community paramedicine is geared towards standalone EMS agencies, or that's only about the healthcare industry and hospital systems. But we we know that's not the case. Um, how do these programs fit into fire departments? Yeah, I got to tell you, Chief, I think that that's an incredible question. And, you know, the a lot of the and a lot of the EMS agencies, and I just don't want to talk about Firebase itself, they're, they're waiting for reimbursement. They'll say, well, there's no reimbursement yet, right? And one of the things that more and more fire agencies, as a matter of fact, I talked about the largest pilot we're doing here in the Midwest. I have a Firebase system that's part of that pilot. We're getting ready to go into Gary, Indiana and do some Medicaid work. We're getting going into Noblesville Fire Department in Noblesville, Indiana, and they're going to be part of this pilot as well. So fire systems that are out there need to know that this could be beneficial for them as well. And they have a little bit different um, a revenue stream than a lot of the standalone EMS agencies, right? They get a tax base that kind of helps them with their operational budget. But still, we're now able to help reduce some of that volume. You know, there are EMS systems, a fire-based EMS system chief that are out there that are running some obscene amount of calls in a 24-hour period. Well, I'm sure that they could take their frequent flyers and they know their names and start working with them to reduce the amount of, of resources that are going to those people on a regular basis. Sure. And then you can get involved with, uh, you know, the Anthems and some of the other insurance companies that are around that now develop another revenue stream. But the, the, it really is moving the mindset of the tradition of fire, the tradition of EMS to say, well, you know, we're not in this business. Because when we think about this from a pioneering standpoint, and we talked about 2008, what, what do we look like 25 years from now? More and more fire systems, more and more standalones, more and more hospital base and third city services 
are going to be in this type of business. So if you're a fire-based system and you're looking to get into this, my first uh, advice to you is determine the need and work with your own high utilizers first and try to prevent them from calling EMS. Any reduction in the amount of resources that you can send to a call, whether it's an ambulance, whether it's an apparatus, whether it's a battalion, whatever it is, you're now saving money for the system. Hence, you're saving money for the taxpayers. Hence, you're able to utilize that money in different areas until you're able to get an alternative revenue stream with alternative reimbursement models. So if, uh, if I'm a fire department or a fire chief looking to start up a uh, community paramedicine program or a mobile integrated health program, where do I start? Can you give our listeners some help with that question? Where do I start? Yeah, the first thing that I would look at is I would pull your own frequent flyers and make the determination of how much it costs your system to take care of those. And when we started this program in MedStar in 2008, we looked at 16 of our high utilizers that were hitting us for about a million dollars a year in cost, not getting reimbursement, but that's what it cost us. So yeah. there's a there's a cost that goes into that and determine what that cost is, because now what you want to be able to do is work those people differently and be preventative instead of being reactive to them. And now what you're doing is you're building your portfolio to say we had 16 people. It was costing us a million dollars. And the first year that we ran this program, we were able to the program cost us $600,000. So we saved $400,000 against the million we would have lost, right? So the same thing for you now as a fire chief, determine your high utilizers, put a number to what that costs to run them, and now let's try to work with those people independently to minimize that number. Because now when you start to go to insurance companies, you know, and that's going to be the next step into this program, you're going to be able to use the same uh, uh, scenario that I just gave you to say, you know, we had 10 people that cost us $400,000. We put one resource on the street to help minimize that. And we wound up saving $200,000 of that money. The next thing that you want to be able to do is go to your hospital system and ask them about the frequent flyers that are coming to their emergency room and say, you know what, we can help you manage those patients. And, uh, you know, give us give us some of those um, patients that are causing you a lot of uh, uh, visits. Um, and let's talk about how we can compensate and keep those people out of the emergency room. And it may be as simple as even helping them get, uh, depending on the state you're in, Chief, um, then getting hooked up into the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act was made for the uh, for the systems that have this, uh, you know, this high utilization and this low socioeconomical um, uh, population. So maybe we can help facilitate them getting some type of insurance. Now the hospitals are getting paid for that. Now they're willing to, you know, help reimburse for that. A lot of different things, but uh, that's where I would start. Sure. Okay, good. Good stuff. Let's uh, let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. Scientific studies have proven that lighter weight and more flexible footwear isn't just about comfort, it's about safety. MSA Globe Superflex boots are state of the science. With unprecedented flexibility and grip plus athletic footwear construction, Superflex performs like a boot but feels like a sneaker. Globe, athletic gear for firefighters. Get the full story at msafire.com slash globe. That's msafire.com slash globe. 
All right, Chris, let's uh, talk, go back to the ET3. And we talked uh, about uh, what all those uh, stood for. We talked about uh, treatment in place, transport to alternative destinations, and treatment in the ER. So let's talk specifically about uh, treatment in place. What does that mean for EMS and EMS-based systems? Yeah, that's another great question, Chief. And one of the things that we've got to think about is we've been doing treatment in place for a long time, right? I mean, somebody's got uh, uh, hypoglycemia. We go in there. We start an IV. We give them some sugar. They wake up. First thing they tell us is, I'm fine. I'm not going to the hospital, right? Same thing with asthma. We go in there. We give them a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, atrovent and albuterol. We leave them there. And we're not getting reimbursed for that. There's, there's, no, there's no payment for that. But now the medical director has the opportunity to develop protocols to say, if there are calls that don't need to go to the hospital that you can treat at home, um, these, are, these, are those, these are those protocols. This is what we want to use. So if you make this determination now, go ahead and treat them in place. Let's, let's connect with a provider online. Let's talk to them about what we found. If they need to talk to the patient, let them talk to the patient and uh, let's leave them at home like we're doing. But now the difference is we can get paid for that. Before, we were just doing it because it was the right thing to do. You know, we can't just force anybody to go to the hospital. We know that. But when we say, um, now I'm going to leave you at home, instead of, you know, just kind of putting our bags away, we're now getting a little bit of reimbursement. ET3 is now paying the provider who's at the other side of that, uh, you know, telehealth visit uh, um, some money. They're paying the EMS provider for leaving at home leaving them at home some money. And this is something that we've never gotten before. So we've been we've been treating in place for a long time, right? We just haven't been getting reimbursed for it. Now CMS is finally coming to the table to say, if your medical director deems that these protocols and this pe these people can stay at home and the provider online says that they agree, we're going to reimburse you for that. And I think that's that's a great milestone right there. Yeah. And, you know, isn't that really you know, for those that provide the service, they know exactly what I'm what I'm going to say. Isn't that really what the majority of the patients want? They want to stay in their home. If we can help them stay there, then they're they're so much better off for it, and they don't get into that system that where they feel like they get trapped in that hospital environment. So, and that's that's great stuff. So, how is um, treatment in place as a thing different from community paramedicine as a program? Yeah, so treatment in place is really, and you think about that ET3, it's really based on that 911 call, right? So when we are, um, you know, responding to someone's home after they've initiated the 911 system, now we have three options of taking care of them rather than one. The only option that we had for reimbursement was take them to the hospital. And right. back in the day, I remember working for a private EMS agency chief. I'm not going to name them, of course. But the, the the mandate was, I don't care what happens. Everybody goes to the hospital. Sure. I don't care what the call is. Everybody goes, right? I mean, because they just wanted to put their hands on the money. But sure. now the paramedic has the opportunity to say, you know what? I could treat you here. You know what? It's not bad. Let me go ahead and get you over to the urgent care center or let me take you to the emergency room. So now the paramedic in their palette of, of uh, transport decisions or treatment decisions, they've got a couple different things that they can choose from, which allows the company to make the reimbursement that we deserved from the very beginning. From a community paramedicine side, we want to be able to figure out the patients who need additional resources to help them become healthier. Let me give you a great example of how 911 and community paramedicine 
kind of helped an individual. And I love telling this story. There was a woman in my last operational role. I was the chief of EMS at Christian Hospital in North St. Louis County. We had a woman that was calling EMS almost daily for seizures for three months. Then she would disappear for three months. Then she would come back for another three or four months. So the community paramedic sat with her for one hour. So we went to her. She had seizures. We, we went to her. Every time she had a seizure, we took her to the hospital. The community paramedic sat with her for one hour and said, well, what, what's happening here? And she goes, well, when you see me, I can't afford my medicine. My medicine's $437 a month, and I've got to be able to feed my family and pay my rent. So when you see me, I can't afford my medicine. When you don't see me, I'm able to save enough to get my medicine every month. The community paramedic sat with her for one hour, chief, just to find out that her medication was on the $4 generic list. Wow. How many people had... How, yeah, how many people had touched her in her medical career, in her medical life, the doctors, you know, she had a, a neurologist, she had a PCP, she had a cardiologist, I mean, but no one ever asked, can you afford this medicine? And yeah. then that was the, that was it. I mean, that was the magic thing. I mean, the community paramedic wound up visiting her for five, maybe five visits or so, and we never heard from this woman again. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's that is a great story. I love that. And and that really is uh, what it's all about is reducing that need to call 911. And in this case, it was such a simple thing. It just took someone sitting down and talking to her. So great story. I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, and we're going to share this link uh, on the uh, on the slide. But in this uh, in a uh, EMT survey, 40 percent of the providers say their agency has implemented treatment in place protocols. So as we talk about that treatment in place piece, what are the protocols that need to be implemented? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. And, you know, I just want to talk about that treatment in place. I'm a little disappointed in how this ET3 thing rolled out, right? ET3 was coming into play uh, before the COVID, right? We knew we were waiting for implementation. And then as soon as COVID happened, CMS started to say, you know what, you treat in place, we'll pay for it. You take them to alternative destination, we'll pay for it. There's only a, a handful of agencies, or a little bit more than a handful of agencies, that are in this ET3 pilot. But back in the day of COVID, everybody was getting it, right? And I was a little bit disappointed. I wanted CMS to say, you know what, let's just keep this going the way it is, instead of going back to this model and uh, figuring it out. But the COVID really kind of, you know, dealing with COVID really kind of changed the paradigm of what we were doing for treatment in place. And really there's medical directors who are looking at some of the, you know, just the little things. People have uh, sprained hands or sprained knees, or, you know, they've got, you know, injuries to their lower legs of, uh, you know, abrasions or contusions or whatever that is, where we would normally take those patients to the hospital. So these superficial things that, can be treated at home, could be bandaged at home. And some of these uh, paramedics are even getting on the phone with the PCP to say, this person needs to come in and see you tomorrow, kind of helping out in that realm. But it really comes down to what the medical director deems that he or she feels comfortable with leaving at home and uh, really kind of uh, using that treatment in place. So I've seen a lot of different things uh, from um, uh, um, some respiratory challenges, if we're able to increase the uh, end tidal CO2, if we're able to increase pulse oximetry, there are some that you're able to stay at home, um, certainly some abdominal pains. But remember, anything that's being treated at home, 
you have to be able to have a provider on the line to say, I agree with you 100%, or you know what, that's a little bit tricky for me, let's get them into the emergency room. But that that's really where it comes down to. So the medical director gets the opportunity to develop those protocols, and then it's corroborated with online medical control or, or that provider online. Yeah, yeah. So ultimately, it's it's about local options as determined by the medical director, and then that, that, that telehealth kind of uh, uh, connection, right? And that's exactly it. I mean, one of the things that you've got to think about where the challenge comes in, Chief, is that the medical director of the agency, if you have somebody that's within that family that knows the protocol, you might be a little bit more liberal in um, following the treatment in place protocols. But there are some agencies that are using outside the system providers who don't really understand the protocols, who are saying, yeah, I don't care what your medical director is saying, take them to the hospital anyway. That's where some of these challenges are coming into as well as part of this treatment in place. Um, but it does work. Yeah, it's definitely an evolving um, science, if you will. And I know there's a lot of medical systems that have only vaguely heard uh, or vaguely scratched the surface, really. So I'm glad you're able to help us get this word out and, and um, you know, hopefully some more folks will, will pick up on things. And this next topic might help them think about it a little more. So you mentioned reimbursement. Um, we've talked about that a couple times. But let's talk about that for a few minutes. Can you explain that part of this entire equation and, and what it's going to take for agencies to get reimbursed specifically for treatment in place protocols, but for the whole ET3 um, element, how, how that all fits in? Yeah, and you know this is a this is a sit down and and let's uh, you know crack a soda, put your feet up kind of conversation. But I'm going to try to give you the Reader's Digest version here. And you know, we're we're a little bit late coming to the table when it comes to reimbursement, right? I mean, we kind of did this a little bit backwards. Phase one was how do we develop a program. Phase two was now that we developed the program, who are we going to take care of and what the heck are we going to do with them? Right. Phase three is what we're in now is we're, try, we're trying to figure out how to pay for it, right? Yeah. And one of the things that you want to be able to do is you've got to be able to understand the language of hospitals and you've got to be able to understand the language of insurance companies. And this is where we have the biggest challenge, right? Because coming from a hospital-based system in my last operational role, and when I went out on my own as a consultant, it gave me the opportunity to learn how to speak the two languages because hospitals have a totally different language than EMS has, right? And I was mm -hmm. able to stand in the middle to help translate that. Well, one of the things that we were telling hospitals was we could stop people coming from your ER. We can stop those high utilizers coming into your emergency room. And while we were thinking we were helping the process, because back in the day, we were using the Affordable Care Act, who was now penalizing hospitals for people who were coming there on a regular basis um, and people who were returning to the hospital after discharge in 30 days. But the hospitals, they don't want that. They don't care that they're coming back. I had a, a CEO of a hospital in New Jersey tell me, you know what? I want these people to come back. I'm happy to pay the penalties to CMS. Well, it really kind of took us in a little bit of a whirlwind where we were telling hospitals we could stop this from happening. And then when we go to the insurance companies, we're saying to them, we can stop your people going to the hospital. But what we're doing is we're not talking the language of how to make that happen. Insurance companies are looking for a return on investment, right? So when we go and we tell them, 
we can save you money. They, they don't want you to save dollar for dollar. They want you to save them five times the sure. reimbursement, right? right? So now what we have to be able to do, Chief, is we, you know, I talked about it earlier. What can fire chiefs do to start their own program? We start with our own internal workings, our own frequent flyers to say, this is how we stop these people from going to the hospital. And we've got this percentage of decrease. I'll tell you, some of those decreases, Chief, are 60 and 70 percent of this high utilizer volume who's using the ambulance and going to the emergency room. Now we want to be able to take those numbers and sit down at the insurance companies to say, this is what we can do for your high utilizers. Give us your top one percent. You know, give us this amount of money for doing this and we will save you a five time ROI. And that's what they're really looking for. So the money is out there. What we have to be able to do is learn how to talk the language. And please, anybody that's out there, feel free to give me a holler. And I'm happy to kind of, you know, give you the, the longer than the Reader's Digest version on how to do this. But you really need the numbers. You really need to show that your program is effective. And then you need to put your hands on the money. And I got to tell you, I don't know that it's that far off, okay? So I've been doing this pilot with Anthem Blue Cross. for I'm in the third year now. And we started this with the commercial base of Anthem. They gave us our high utilizers, people that had high risk stratification score. They had multiple comorbidities. Uh, They had multiple conditions. Um, They had the high spend and they said, can you help us to minimize that? I can't talk specifically about the savings. Now they want us to move into the Medicaid space, which is a higher space. And actually, we're going to work with the, uh, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, the Memphis Fire Department, Gary, Indiana's Fire Department down in Lake City, Florida. And we're going to start working with the Medicaid population. So here's my hope, is that within the next year or two, Anthem is going to be more global in paying for community paramedicine home visits. My fingers are crossed. I'm praying every single night on my knees that that can happen. Once that domino falls, more insurance companies are going to fall into play. But one of the things that we need to be able to do as individual agencies is get in front of these payers to say, I've got a great way to to help your subscribers become healthier have a better quality of life, and oh, by the way, I can get you the return on investment you're looking for. Yeah, good stuff. Let's shift gears one more time before we uh, get ready to close out here and uh, talk about the uh, bestseller you've got. Uh, And knowing that you work in the kind of the leadership development space, you wrote a book that is on the national bestseller list. The title is Ultimate Coaching Skills for Developing a Highly Engaged Workforce. Uh, we'll have a link up on um, the page here uh, to the uh, Amazon. If Can you help our listeners, though, tell us a little bit about the book and uh, offer maybe a sneak peek? Yeah, thank you so much for that opportunity, Chief. And, you know, I just love the leadership. I, I, was, a, I was a poor leader when I was a, young, a younger uh, person, right? I was trained in the military. When you come out into the civilian world, you can't treat people like you treat them in the military, right? It's a different world. And I had to be able to learn the science of leadership. And I've said for a long time that leadership is both an art and a science. We know that. And we've got to be able to understand the science before we can paint the portrait of organizational success. And this book, and this is my third number one bestseller, actually, is Ultimate Coaching. And people will always ask me, how do you develop a coaching business, Chris? 
And actually, I set out to write a book on how to develop a coaching business. But then I thought, wait a minute, I'm going to give people the uh, strategy of how to develop a business. Do they know how to coach people? So I shifted gears a little bit. And I now in this book, Ultimate Coaching uh, Skills for Developing a Highly Engaged Workforce, it's the skills that you need to be able to coach people effectively. You know, our job as leaders, Chief, is to get the very best out of our workforce. And we need to ensure that when we get work done through other people, they're doing the best that they can. The true measurement of leadership success is how engaged, satisfied, and productive your workforce is. You can flower and put anything you want into that equation. But if your workforce isn't engaged, if your workforce isn't satisfied, and they're not productive, your agency is having a little bit of challenge. And how we want to do that is we want to get away from this progressive discipline that, you know, this, that we've had. It's, it's antiquated now. We have a different workforce. And we need to be able to talk to them like they're adults. We need to be able to teach them. You know, We need to be able to inspire them. We need to be able to motivate them. We need to be able to teach them how to grow their skills to help them get to the next level. And in that process, we start to develop a solid organization that allows us to truly take the organization to the next level. In the book, Ultimate Coaching, we're going to talk about servant leadership. We're going to talk about how to motivate yourself first. What right do I have? to try to motivate an employee and coach an employee if I'm not coaching myself and making sure that I'm the best that I can be. Then we talk about inspiration and motivation. We talk about how do we handle uh, a coaching uh, situation. If we're going to sit down and coach somebody, what do we need to know before we do that? And how do we do that? One of my, one of my goals, Chief, is to go into organizations and help develop their leaders and take the progressive discipline process out of every single organization because we're not their parents and we don't need to punish people. You know what? I'm going to coach you. I want the very best out of you. What is your commitment to making this work? And sometimes you got to say, I think we need to end our professional relationship, but we shouldn't have to do it with verbals, written, final written suspension and bye-byes. And, uh, you know, so I think that that's the cornerstone. I'm going to tell you this, Chief. If they ever make this book into a movie, I'm going to want you to play me. How about that? <laughs> Uh, I'll be happy to uh, I'll be happy to play that role. But let me tell you, you just cut into the heart of chiefs everywhere when you said do away with progressive discipline. So it sounds like it's a great read. They need to get their hands on it. And once again, the link will be up there. Um, Chris, I appreciate you taking time to join us today. Do you have anything else to add? No, Chief, my pleasure. Again, I just love this show. And, uh, you know, go ahead and check out the Inside EMS podcast over there on uh, EMS One. Me and Kelly Grayson do a great job of breaking down what's happening inside EMS. And I'm going to stay a fan of uh, your show, Chief, and continued success for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I have some takeaways here that we want to capture from our discussion uh, with uh, Chris Ciblero and the who is the uh, host of Inside EMS on uh, EMS1.com. We've been talking about mobile integrated health and community paramedicine, and he talked about mobile integrated health as an umbrella with many different panels, uh, panels of the umbrella. And, and then I kind of talked about myself of community risk reduction and how that's really a, an even broader umbrella to cover everything from fire prevention to uh, health uh, prevention. So good discussion about what mobile integrated health was versus community paramedicine getting into uh, treatment in the field. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, then uh, he talked about 
that, you know, community paramedicine really isn't something new and has been discussed as far back as 1997. Uh, in the discussion of treatment in place, uh, ET3 is treatment in place, uh, transport to alternative destination or treatment in an ER uh, really is about a 911 benefit, but it, ultimately it's about a patient benefit. Uh, then we talked about the uh, revenue streams uh, to help uh, fund at Mobile and Gray Health and community paramedicine programs. And, you know, you've really got to go back and listen to the program, but also uh, dive into this and, and study what it is you need to do to find those funding mechanisms. They're out there. You've just got to do some homework to find them. Uh, may I ask them, we asked uh, Chris to talk about uh, chiefs or departments that were looking to start up community paramedicine programs and what were the things they could do. There were four things. He said, pull the frequent flyers. That was number one. Number two, determine the costs uh, that they uh, that those frequent flyers cost your department. Three was to work with them independently to reduce their 911 calls. And then four was to go to the hospital system and help them manage their frequent flyers. Very basic things, and but broad, but those four steps to help you start a program. Uh, then we talked about uh, connecting with uh, uh, providers online in the whole telehealth discussion and, and getting reimbursed for that whole piece and making sure that you learn how to coordinate through that uh, discussion. And then we talked about the difference of uh, uh, treatment in place and community paramedicine as uh, uh, the treatment in place being a 911 call versus community paramedicine being a resource deployment coordination effort. We talked about the NAMT survey and uh, what protocols are necessary because, you know, that's really important, obviously. And, and Chris uh, nailed it on the head that uh, that is really a local option thing is determined by the medical director and the providers in the system and in, in the field. Um, we talked about the reimbursement again. And the best advice Chris gave on that particular topic was to learn how to talk the language that the hospitals and insurance companies talk. If you can talk that language, you can begin uh, to understand and uh, begin that reimbursement process. And then we did talk about uh, his latest best-selling book, and uh, that book titled Ultimate Coaching Skills for Developing a Highly Engaged Workforce. And two points I wanted to bring up about that is he talked about leadership as an art and science. And then the part where he cut into the gut of most chiefs as they don't think about it this way, is to get away from progressive leadership and closer to an environment where we're inspiring, motivating, and coaching. Great stuff. Uh, Chris, I, again, I appreciate your time with us today. That's all the time we have. Um, please listen to Inside EMS, the podcast on ems1.com with Chris Sebolero. Uh, um, I appreciate all of the time that you've taken with us today, and I appreciate our listeners joining with us. This is Mark Basher, Executive Editor for FireRescue1.com. Join us on FireRescue1 or FireChief.com for the latest news, training, and information affecting the fire service worldwide. Have a great day on purpose. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care.